Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Taylor Dupree, a sound artist, fervent collaborator, and founder of the 12K label. Taylor has a new EP titled Eve, out now on Network Music Group. Always very apparent with Taylor's music, and this EP is no exception, that every sound is so carefully crafted. I think Taylor brings you back to an appraisal of sound and its possibilities, sound creation as a real craft. You can navigate this music as you would navigate a forest or a field, and you can stop and examine any individual sound and find that it's been presented with real care. There's such a fullness to everything. Taylor clearly feels, uh, thinks a lot about fidelity, about decay, uh, about the characteristics of everything that exists within the space of his music. So you can take each individual sound in turn and pinpoint your listening there, or you can take this holistic appraisal of everything and how it all fits together within space. I love speaking to Taylor, he's a great company, picked three great records as well, and yeah, I hope you enjoy this one too. As always, you can support Crucial Listening on coffee ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening. You can donate monthly or one-off any amount you please that helps keep the podcast ticking. Thank you for listening as always. Hope you enjoy this conversation. This is Taylor Dupree on Crucial Listening. Taylor, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hello, thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We are here to talk about three important records that you have picked. Uh, first, I want to talk about your music. So let's start with Eve, uh, which came out recently on Networks, your new single. Um, take me back to the beginnings of this piece. I don't know how old it is and how easy this will be for you to recall, but what are the first pieces of Eve to assemble themselves for you? Yeah, it actually started in 2020 as as I was working toward a new album for my label, 12K. Hmm. And I had built up sort of an album's worth of material that I was going to release last year. Um, I work very slowly on my own music. Um, and then the whole network thing happened and it just sort of made sense to, you know, pull out 
songs from that album for this EP. The e- the song Eve is part of an EP called Eve hmm. that will be out in August with five songs on it and a couple sort of longer versions of songs. Um, I'm not used to releasing singles uh-huh. and you know, it's nothing I've really, I guess as the, as a, as a very small label that I run myself, you know, I never really had the energy or the, um, uh, I don't know the, really the perp, the, reasons to release singles ahead of albums um mm-hmm. so i'm kind of glad that network can do that for me and just be able to better manage everything um so yeah it's part of the song is part of uh, an ep and yeah i mean i'm actually looking at the song session right now and there's there's sounds in that song that date back to like 2018 oh wow um and that's kind of how I work. I mean, I keep every year I keep folders of little ideas and explorations throughout the year. And, you know, a lot of it's cool. A lot of it's not. And when it, when I sit down to write a record, you know, and I have a concept in my head, um, sometimes I'll go back to these folders. I don't care how old they are. I have folders going back to 2014 currently on my computer. Um, just sort of seeing if anything was, you know, interesting or fits with what I'm trying to do now, you know, um, and sometimes there is, you know, and in this case, it looks like as far back as 2018, but, you know, just like a couple sounds or, or some sort of loop or, or hmm. you know, um, something like that, little, little pieces, little bits and pieces, but it really, you know, I started it in 2020 and probably had it to a place that I liked for the 12 K record. And then as I talked to my team over at network and we kind of focused in on some ideas, I think it's pretty radically changed from what it was going to be on the 12 K album. Um, I tend to work on things up until the last second that the label needs them. Um, (laughs) So, you know, it's kind of the problem of modern digital music production since you never have to stop working on it. Um, And it's hard to commit and to say, okay, it's done. You know, one more tweak, one more little, (laughs) you know, little thing. And it's just, finally someone says, we need the song. And I'm like, all right, I guess it's good enough. Here it is. (laughs) You know, but I really like, I just, they, they need the, the whole EP, uh, last Friday. And I was finishing the last song last night on it, you know, and they needed it a couple days ago and I told them they'd have it today and they're not going to have it today. Um, (laughs) but maybe tomorrow, (laughs) but it's just, you know, it's, I drive myself crazy with these little, I'm my own worst critic. So I'm just constantly fixing things and, tweaking things that no one else will probably ever hear or care about. Um, but yeah. How different is it setting those boundaries for yourself, which I agree is really difficult. And you're a mastering engineer. So is it easier when working on other people's work to say, okay, this is going to be done by the state and I'm going to get it over oh, to yeah. them? Oh yeah. Cause I mean, we have, you know, schedules and deadlines and mastering is, you know, com- completely different. Hmm 
beast than songwriting you know i mean the song is the song it's done yeah know? yeah and i do to it what i think it needs you know and um send it to the client and you know they either say great we're done or you know can we try this or this or this and sometimes it that can go on for a few revisions hmm. um but it's nothing like you know not going to take a year to master someone's record right um, yeah yeah of course yeah. you know their mix is done and they're happy with their mix so it's just my job to you know make any last little adjustments hmm. you know not not moving things around or rearranging anything to return to eve as well so the single that was released was accompanied by a sleep version so mm-hmm. tell me about how that came about as well i think the last thing i released before this was a album called small winters on a new york label called pure magnetic mm. and it was there was one really long song. It was a cassette tape. It was one like 15 minute track. Then there was a bunch of like one to two minute songs. And I'd never really worked. I'm used to doing, you know, seven sort of seven or more minute things Mm -hmm. relatively long. Um, And it was kind of fun to work in that short, you know, frame framework. It was different for me. So with the Eve stuff, Network was, you know, really happy to have short versions. But I think some of the initial things that we heard that I sent them were like the full longer version mm-hmm. that I did originally done. And they're like, you know, these are cool too. You know, why don't we like use both? And I, so that's basically how that, um, I would either have a short song and then extend it longer or already have a long song and cut it down a little shorter, you know, depending. And me personally, I sleep to ambient music every night. So um, it's a pretty natural way for me to name them. Nice. I figure we'll talk about that more uh, later in the podcast as yeah. well. Nice. So, um, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to bring up here is something which is also really interesting it's a, a record you put out with jeremiah freights called northern redux which is described correct me if i'm wrong is it a reimagining of your 2006 album northern which yeah it's fascinating that you're hauling up this record i've listened to you know to both over the last couple of days back to back it's so interesting to hear this record that is you know coming on two decades old refashioned in this yeah. way so <laughs> how on earth did you end up bringing this record back yeah. into the present yeah how did this project come it's to be? wild yeah it was really wild like jeremiah is one of the founding the main two guys in the band the lumineers and some people may know lumineers but completely different kind of music than yeah I yeah um and vastly more popular than i'll ever be um <laughs> and i i had met jeremiah through a mutual friend of ours or at least heard i I forgot exactly the initial meetings but basically he'd he'd emailed me some gear question we we have a mutual friend and we just got talking kind of about gear and it turns out he was a big fan of my music and which you know surprised not like i should you know people don't you know, they can listen to other kinds of music than they make. Of course I do. Um, Uh but 
and he had mentioned he was doing a radio interview with someone and and had mentioned this album northern on the interview and someone maybe someone sent me a clip of this interview and say well check this out like you know guy from the lumineers just mentioned your album on the radio and um he said it was like his you know one of his favorite albums of all time and he just thinks it's wild and um so maybe three years ago i emailed him and said hey, i have a really crazy it, he had just released a solo album called piano piano uh-huh. of just solo piano works um something that was interesting for him to do outside of the pop framework of the lumineers and i said i know this sounds crazy but you know would you be interested in doing a piano cover like rebuild my northern album but just as a solo piano record and i didn't hear from him for a while and i forgot what happened but he basically said yes but once we started talking more about it and got working we quickly realized that just him the songs are too weird and amorphous to you know just do with piano mm-hmm. um so he said or we basically ended up me trying to rebuild the or opening up the old sessions from 2006 wow. and <laughs> which were you know on a program i don't use anymore with <laughs> plugins and stuff that are long gone and but so we basically you know um to make a long story short i i rebuilt the album from the ground up and he uh worked in piano parts um and the main sort of rule for us was that for me especially is that i wasn't going to be precious about the original album at all we you know we ripped it apart we completely changed the some of the you know the arrangements half the songs are gone sounds are gone um there's some new sounds in there you know sort of whatever served the project best i didn't want to like rebuild the album exactly as it was and just have piano put on top of it you know mm-hmm. yeah. it was more about creating something new um and it took a while i mean he's very busy and you know listening on tour buses and stuff and took us well over a year to do but you know we're really happy with the results and it's really weird for me to go back and listen i i don't listen to my own music so mm-hmm. even to hear it when we were starting was interesting for me and now comparing the two the old one to me sounds so sort of thin and incomplete huh. um, wow interesting you know it's really weird even though i know that it's of a time and of a place and you know, has some sort of worth as it was. It just sounds so, yeah, like, like incomplete, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah, it was wild. It was really, uh, really a fun experience. And we're both happy. It was, Jer had a really fun time being able to do something totally different than what he normally does. And, um, I got to revisit this old album with a collaborator who's, in a completely different world than I am. So, yeah, it was neat. Wicked. I'll put links in the show notes to both Eve and Northern Redux as well. They're both really, really cool. I've had some great times with them recently. So, um, yeah, uh, Taylor, we should move on to your 
important records. And one question I like to ask at this point is about how you thought about the word important when picking your list of records. So was there a way that you understood important in order to come up with the three records that you did? Yeah, there was actually. I mean, it. you know, I should say that, you know, it's impossible to pick just three records. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I didn't pick favorite records. I didn't pick most listened to records. Um, and there's records that should be on this list that aren't, you know, we could talk about 10 important records, 20 important records. But so for me, there were records that, that made my own music take a drastic shift, like just like a slam on the brakes and pivot, you know, sort of pivot, not, or just, or at least what I, what I thought music could be or really made me rethink you know what my music was or what where my music could go sort of Hmm. um you know that really just fundamentally changed how i thought about music that's probably the best way to um that's how i defined important nice Uh, one yeah you know that had a an important you know, to use the the word again, important effect on my own music creation, you know, so, yeah. Nice. So we can go in whichever order feels natural to you. There is one. So yeah. Which one do you want to talk about first? We'll go in, I think chronological order. Uh Uh-huh. Um, although I'm not quite sure on the, well, we'll go. So we'll, yeah. Do you want me to say the name, or do you want to? <laughs> so the, the first so one, just so we'll on the start with the page. Eno record. Yeah, Brian yeah. Eno, Thursday afternoon, which nineteen eighty five, right? I think this one came out. So I think it came out in eighty four. Ah, did um, it? And I first started in eighty five. Ah, gotcha. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, give me a little introduction as to why this one's important to you. Yeah. So this this is this is. Uh, probably my favorite, I mean, not probably, it is my favorite piece of music of all time. So, um, yeah, it's the, it's, yeah, my favorite piece of music. So, um, it, I first heard it in 1985 when I was in high school and I was, um, my best friend at the time, or he became my best friend because we were two kids in school that had synthesizers (laughs) and, (laughs) And, you know, he was wearing a Cure t-shirt or something, and I was probably wearing a Cure t-shirt or something. <laughs> Saw each other across the room in art class or something and realized that we both loved music and both just got our first synthesizers. And we said we should get together and make music. And that lasted for about five years of heavy, heavy music making. Um of which I still have every piece dated on cassette tapes. Um, and we sort of, we started with one synth each, not really knowing what we were doing and saying, Hey, we need, you know, maybe we should get a drum machine, you know, so we'd save up our money and get a drum machine and maybe we should get a four track and we got a four, you know, and it's just a very organic process of learning how to write music with no internet and no, you know, Anyway, so very important time in my life that my the first 
seeds of my own music making. Mm. But we'd, we'd spend the weekends together at one, one or other of our houses. And when we'd spend the weekend at his house, when we went to bed after making music, he would put on, he took out the CD by Brian Eno called Thursday afternoon. He said, you should, you know, check this out. And, um, he'd play it and he'd put the CD player on repeat and it would play all through the night. And then we wake up the next morning, it was still playing. And it was the weirdest. I highly suggest anyone uh, to do that. It's very strange because the, the piece of music doesn't change a whole lot. Um, mm. I mean, it does, there's, you know, endless changes and subtle sounds in it, but it's basically 16, 61 minutes of kind of the same thing. And that's what really blew me away about it. Um, mm. I'd never heard, first of all, a 61 minute piece of music before I'd ne never heard anything so minimal and so not changing, but constantly changing. Mm -hmm. Um, and to wake, to go to sleep, listening to it and to wake up hearing the exact same thing, you, you didn't, you kind of lose sense of time. Like, did I even sleep? You know, it wasn't, yeah. you know, how long have I been sleeping? It's very, it's really weird. And, um, but it was my first introduction to ambient music. Um, and it's not like I immediately said, Oh, I have to write ambient music now. I didn't even really think of that for another almost 10 years. Hmm. Um, but this piece of music was a constant in my life for, for the entire time after that. It's just, you know, it's, it's still this, this whole idea of, of long pieces that, that very gradually change or don't change at all, or, you know, that just kind of get you lost. Um, has always been something that I've strived to do in my own music. Uh, mm -hmm. so, while I don't really like genre names or anything, you know, if people, if I have to say I write ambient music, um, then this is the, this record's important because it's the piece that introduced me to ambient music. Um, hmm. You know, and like I said, even long before I even started to, to write it, it was just sort of with me for many years uh, ahead of that. So, yeah. How often do you do you listen to it now? Probably, um, I listen to it when sleeping, because mm -hmm. um, you know occasionally I'll put it on like in the house, but I don't. I don't listen. I listen to a lot of music in the car while I'm driving, but no ambient music. I don't listen to quiet music in the car just because it gets drowned out. Um, mm -hmm. But it depends. Uh, maybe maybe once a week. Wow. Um, but like sometimes I'll get stuck like late lately. I've been listening to, um, Eno and, and Harold Bud's the Pearl. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll just like, I'll just listen to a particular album for like two weeks, you know, every night. And then mm. eventually I'm like, oh, I should probably change it up. And then I'll, you know, put on something else. But I have a few like, multi-hour sleep playlists for myself and Thursday afternoon is in those and they usually come up. So, you know, I could be listening to it every night for a month or, 
you know, maybe it goes to once a, a week or once every couple of weeks, but you know, it's, it's a regular thing for sure. I wanted to ask a bit more about this sleeping to ambient music. I mean, it's something that I've done occasionally too. I had mm-hmm. some really crazy dreams to Robert Rich's Somnium listening to that. Like it was really, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that did something to my head while I was slumbering for sure. I wondered what for you are the qualities of a record that makes it feel like appropriate or conducive yeah. to sleep listening. I mean, it's, I've listened to music sleeping since I was a teenager, probably since the mid eighties. But back then I was listening to like Nitzareb and skinny puppy going to sleep and definitely not sleep music um <laughs> yeah you know industrial music and you know i don't know i just put it on next to my bed and i eventually fall asleep but um yeah now i do have a very specific like music can't have words mm-hmm. and it can't have drums mm-hmm. that's not to say like if i fly if i'm on a flight um i have very specific music that i listen to um that always every flight I take starts with Mark Hollis from Talk Talk's solo record. Oh wow, um, really? Wow. Which is which has drums and singing, and I'm usually <laughs> asleep before the plane even leaves the runway. So I, 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 I can sleep to other kinds of music, but at home when I'm going to bed at night, yeah, the music can't have vocals or drums. Mm-hmm. Um, drums just because tends to be, you know, a little more disruptive sounding. And vocals because I don't want to latch on to anything specifically and start like seeing them in my head or something and you mm-hmm. know not sleeping. I have trouble sleeping generally. Um, it takes me a long time to fall asleep, so I need to kind of slow my head down, and I don't want to start listening to lyrics, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, it has to be quiet and whatever, mellow and ambient, but. Um, yeah, specifically, no drums or lyric vocals. Lyrical vocals. It could have, like, choral, you know, non-worded vocals, I suppose. Yeah, I guess it's that quality of not someone talking to you <laughs> while, while you're right. uh, going under. Um, so another quality of Thursday afternoon, which is very prominent and feels like it has a kinship with your music, not to be too reductive is this irregular looping that you know uses mm-hmm. with loops yeah. of various lengths so uh, is it fair to say that that aspect of this piece as well lodged itself in your head somewhere yeah abs- i think it absolutely did and I, but i think it did so somewhat subconsciously i mean for a long time now i've worked with different metered uh, loops Mm. and I'm not quite sure where I got it, but I know that I didn't get it from, or at least consciously sort of get that from Eno. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though probably everything else in my career I did get from Eno, (laughs) but because I only recently, maybe in the last 10 years or something found out that music for airports is actually a, um, a series of irregular tape loops. Um, I had no idea. I, I, you know, I've listened to the piece of music for decades, but I don't always research, 
you know, mm. music or, or whatever, but, you know, and then that sort of blew me away that, that it was, I guess, I mean, if you listen to it, it makes sense, but, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I don't know where I got specifically got this idea. Um, I mean, it's nothing new, so it could have been from a lot of sort of subconscious or even conscious inspirations, but yeah, it's something that I've, um, sort of the, often the foundation of what I do. I mean, you mentioned music for airports there. So another Eno record, which, you know, has a similar quality as you say, but I'm wondering, obviously, Eno's output is so vast. Um, Mm -hmm. where did this take you in terms of your relationship with, with Eno's music? Which, um, music for airports or, Oh, generally, I mean, as in, well, once you heard Thursday Afternoon, did that generate a desire to check out more Brian Eno? Yeah, I mean, my f- my friend at the time who introduced me to Thursday Afternoon, probably the same day or the day after, introduced me to Harold Budd, um, and specifically his work with Eno and his work with the Cocteau Twins. Um, mm. So I've been listening to Eno and Bud, for as long as I've been listening to Thursday Afternoon. Uh, My friend at the time probably had, you know, Music for Airports and all the other ones as well. So, um, you know, I'm sure it didn't take too long before I heard heard the the catalog Mm. uh, and realized that, yeah, this ambient music is like a thing, you know, it's more than just one record. I should say the episode that came out today of this podcast actually also has an Eno record on it. Matthew Cooper of Alluvium picked Another Green World, which is okay, yeah. w- way over the other side. Uh, did did that kind of area of Eno's output ever speak to you at all? Not so much. Um, I've listened to them occasionally. Um, and I have friends that, you know, love those records, but yeah, they don't. Um, I mean, a lot of the production is really interesting, you know, and um, I definitely appreciate his his production work. But just the songs in general, um, I'm not a big fan of his singing. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to Eno, I'm pretty much pretty close-minded on the ambient stuff and. And really the older ambient stuff. I, I think the last piece of his that I really enjoyed was um, was Lux, uh, which I thought was mm. quite nice. Um, so I'm really, a, you know, when it comes to Eno, I'm really an uh, ambient fan and less of the newer stuff or the, I think for Warp a while ago, he did some more rhythmic stuff. Um, yeah. Taylor, let's go to your second important album. So which one 
Do you yeah, want to let's go for? to Rio Giacada. Yeah. Um, yeah, Rio. This was the Eno record was absolutely going to be on this list. Um, just because I think it's set up so long ago where I am now. These other two, you know, could probably be, you know, replaced. I mean, there's a lot of, like I said earlier, there's a lot of records that are important, but these other two are the first two that came to my mind. So I figured that would, uh, good enough <laughs> to include. Um, so yeah, Rio Giacada's plus minus. Let me check the date on this release. I think it was like 96. I think it's when it first came out. Is it 96? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So, uh, Reeducate is plus minus has really, yeah, it's 96, um, has very little to do with any kind of music that I do now. Mm -hmm. Um, but somewhat little bit what to do, what I was with, what I was doing back in the late nineties or early two thousands. But when I heard this record, I'd never heard anything like it before. And it surprised me that this could be considered music, you know, not in a bad way, like, Oh, this terrible noise is, you know, music. But like, I was so fascinated with this just incredibly uh, pure, the, the focus on this incredibly pure sine waves, really low frequencies and really high frequencies. Mm. And, um, I thought it was the coolest thing. Um, I mean, I loved it the second I heard it, and I'd, I'd heard nothing, you know, never heard anything like it before, mm. which is, you know, it's hard to do in music is to to hear. It's hard to hear anything new in music, um, mm. and the older you get, you know, the more you hear and the more you know. Um, but at the time, this to me was unlike anything I've heard and, and really sort of opened my mind to what's what's allowed, you know, not that there's any rules. Um, but you know, wow, if he can do this, you know, what else can we do kind of thing? Yeah. Um, and it was right, right around the, it's an, you know, considered probably a pretty early record in the whole microsound and clicks, clicks and cuts era, which I was getting into at the time. Um, this idea of highly computerized and very digital, very clean uh, music that, you know, really you can only do on a computer. Um, it was an exciting, exciting time to make music and to be a part of all that. Um, and mm. this certainly, you know, ushered my way into that scene and, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I never, um, like I said, I don't do anything like that at all now. Um, but it always just stuck with me, the guts that people have sometimes. Like, I don't think I would have ever had the confidence to release a record like that. Right, right. Um, which is, you know, it's so great when people can just, you know, really, yeah, experiment and be confident with doing something so radical um mm. and i really admire that and and um 
yeah, so that's kind of why it's important record for me. It just it, it broadened my horizons about what music can be um, to uh, in in a really radical way. You know, a, a lot of music does that. You know, as you grow up, when I first heard industrial music or first heard craft work or all these things that change your you know broaden your horizons in in music. But this one was just really has always stuck with me over these years over the years of being really radical and uh, really, really cool. Do you remember how you first discovered it? No, I don't. Um, I, I don't remember. I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there was just like that whole musical scene was, was the one I was in at the time. So everyone, you know, kind of knew each other and you know, I, I, I know Ryoji personally. I mean, we, or at least I did. We haven't talked in many years, but during the early two thousands, um, we spent a little time together in Berlin, and um, you know. But I don't, yeah, I don't remember who introduced me to it, or if I just, you know, these, you get, you know, you get in circles of friends and people and you know, uh, word gets passed around. So I'm sure it was just sort of one of those things like, Hey, check this, check this record out kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I went to the store and bought the CD. Um, unfortunately probably something as boring as that, but you know, I don't remember a specific, you know, moment of, of being introduced to it, but I do remember, I do remember it changing my musical outlook. So, Yeah. So I had a similar experience, although for me it came with Ryoji Okeda's music specifically, but for me it came in about 2008-2009. So Mm -hmm. by that point I had a real abundance of material in this vein and quite obvious inroads to find that material too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I had a real buffet of microsound to tuck into. What were the other bands and artists who were also that you were finding around this kind of area of music as well around the same time you were finding Virgil Okada's music. Yeah. It was like the, the raster guys, the raster no tone guys, uh-huh. um, Karsten and Frank and Olaf. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, they were, you know, they could have been responsible for introducing me to it, but uh, Frank Brettschneider ha- has, or, had i don't know if he's i guess he's not really still doing it but a project called comet with a k mm-hmm. and i remember buying a comet cd at other music in new york just sort of randomly because the cover was cool <laughs> and i put it on and this probably would have been a good one to mention for this as well but i put it on and it was exactly what i was making myself Oh, wow. And, you know, not, and I was like, whoa, there's, I mean, not exactly, but, you know, kind of in the same vein, I was like, this is incredible. There's other people doing this mm-hmm. kind of thing. I'm, and I remember getting in touch with Frank and ended up, you know, becoming friends with those guys and, and releasing some music with Frank. That initial Comet album I bought got me down the, the raster music uh, rabbit hole 
and mm. their early early records. They had a very specific cover design. I can sort of picture them in my head before they got really hyper um, hyper design and like visual art focused. Their earlier stuff um, had a different look, still designed, but not quite as like precise as they are doing these days. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But there was a bunch of music. I remember like um, I. I had just come from a tech. I was I was making a lot of techno in the mid to late '90s, and becoming sort of disillusioned with it. But I was still listening to a lot of techno and, and getting specifically into more experimental and sort of arrhythmic techno uh, from the likes of like Thomas Brinkman, if you know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Mike Inc. These there's a label called Profan. It was that did this really amazing sort of disjointed techno with things falling out of time and stuff like that. And this was all sort of the clicks and cuts kind of um, thing, sort of creeping into other genres. And, um, you know, whether it was techno or ambient music or purely formalist, ultra pure stuff like Ryoji or or Karsten. Um, mm. And then it eventually sort of crept into my own ambient music and label and just got a little more melodic and this and that and kind of went from there. But um, yeah, that was some of the other stuff I was listening to around then. So Ryoji's had a fair few records out. Um, Kate Carr came on this podcast a long while back and picked mm-hmm. Dataplex. Uh, mm-hmm. as one of her three records uh, what was it about plus minus specifically that makes it the important one for you I mean it was the first one I heard so right and I you know and it was just this you know these extreme frequencies you know these ultra high pitched sine waves and these really low ones and just this I, I sort of always thought of it as very high contrast music. Yes. You yeah. know, there was, it was black and white, you know, there was no, I mean, plus minus has some more tonal pieces and stuff like that. But, you know, when I think of the core of Rio Jacada, it's this very black and white music that's very low, very high, you know, incredibly tight, you know, machine timing, you know, just very, um, I found it very cold, hmm. but not not in a bad, not unenjoyable or anything. Just you know, um, just yeah, cold. You know, almost dystopian sort of. Yes. Um, yeah. Like wow, this you know this, this is where music is now. Like where you know what's happened to the world? <laughs> you know where's you know the Beatles or something. Um, <laughs> You know, which I love the Beatles, uh, but you know, it's just so wild, you know, so just crazy. Uh, mm. it, it struck me, you know, that this, um, and I love sound, you know, I love sound as a phenomenon. So hearing these really clean, you know, very digital, pure tones was exciting for me. Mm. Um, just from a, a sonic or engineering point of view. I think it's interesting as well, 
to see his music or his art generally presented in a physical space, which I've seen on a couple of occasions, like an installation in like mm-hmm. a massive, like converted car park, basically. So it's huge. And then again at the Barbican here. So very nice, plush, nice sounding venue. But nonetheless, to hear it uh, emanate and even have a bit of reverb on it in actual mm-hmm. real life space is kind of surreal for a moment and to be in company as well to a certain yeah, extent yeah but... yeah it is and you know Ryoji has come so far in you know the art world and just you know just has really managed this amazingly beautiful stuff that still you know his visuals look just like his music sounds and, yeah. and uh, you know it's um He's really got it dialed in, which is great. Mm. Have you had many opportunities to see in a concert setting? Ryoji? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have not seen... I've seen him play live before. It was sort of, you know, big installation works. Yes. And it was in New York. And I just remember it was like everything was white. Like the room was white. And he was wearing white and um it was just kind of like a gig right like a uh this was probably like 2001 or something like that mm-hmm. um and i don't think i've actually ever seen any of his full scale installation work in person right right i've seen you know online and things but um not in person i saw one it, like i say it was in this car park but it depended on I reckon about 50 MacBooks for part of it, just all lined up one after the other mm-hmm. or either side of this like corridor. And um, someone attending decided to just flick the power button on one of them. So the screen <laughs> went off and then we all got ushered out of the installation because it would uh-huh. take like a, I think they, they mentioned like over an hour plus just to reset it, which... Oh, wow. It was frustrating because I was having a bloody good time, but kind of spoke to the just immense technological synchronicity of what he was doing with those installations as well. Like Everything's so in sync. Yeah. You just knock out one MacBook and the whole thing just right. <laughs> comes down, which is kind of beautiful. I mean, his, you know, while I haven't seen his pieces in specific and installation settings i've seen other you know similar sort of things but the fact that he works largely with sine waves yeah um really is a is a tool you know that can be used in physical spaces architectural spaces um you know because every room has a resonant frequency um Mm -hmm. or more than one and if you can i'm i'm sure he's played with you know, rooms, resonant frequencies, and you can really do some strange psychoacoustic things if you start tapping into those, uh, especially with sine waves, because, I mean, they're so, you know, they have just the fundamental and no overtones or harmonics, so you can really zap a room frequency pretty accurately and start (laughs) to play with the space. Um, So I think it lends itself, like you said, 
you know, it could take it away from the dryness of a CD recording or something and enter into reverberant spaces. But it, um, if done intentionally, you know, it can be pretty amazing. So Taylor, one more important record. So yeah, maybe give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important yeah. to you as well. So this one is Microstoria's Model 3 Step 2, um, which is one of my favorite records of all time. Hmm. And I almost sent you, instead of this one, uh, a record by Vladislav Delay. Okay. Um, I hadn't picked one in particular yet uh, that I was going to send, but I tend to think of his music and Microstoria affected me in similar ways. Um, So with Microstoria, the reason this one is so important to me, and I can't say necessarily it was influential on me as well as, as much as it was a kindred spirit like mm-hmm. something I, I was exploring at the time already and just found that they did it uh, so well. And that's the idea that I often describe my own music as, and that is of music that goes nowhere. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that can sound like a bad thing if you're talking about a, a book or a movie or, but not even, I mean, so, you know, I don't think that music, at least the music I make, doesn't necessarily have intentional starts or finishes. Mm. Um, I mean, they do because we're forced to have a music file that, you know, has a start and has a finish to it. So we're forced to have these boundaries. Um, and of course, there's installation work or generative phone apps and stuff that you know, that get around these things. Um, but I've always loved this idea of, and the way I think of my own music is that when it first comes on, you're sort of placed in the middle of it, even though it's the beginning, you know, it doesn't necessarily sound like the beginning or, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, a little hard to explain, but my idea is that I just want the listener to sort of be plopped down in this, little sound world yes and things are happening around you um and things come and go and and uh repeat and not repeat and it's this just sort of amorphous uh space that you exist in while the music is playing and i always felt that microstoria did that so well um and you know a lot of you know, they have sort of a main, often have a main theme, but then all these just little sounds happening, you know, that come and go once, you know, you hear a sound once and it's gone forever and you hear another <laughs> one and just all these sort of, you know, they've created this sort of biosphere of 
you know, little digital jungle um, mm. that you exist in. And, and it's always, I just always love that about their music. Um, you know, no, you know, no hooks, no, I mean, it goes without saying in this kind of music that there's no hooks and verses and choruses and stuff like that, but just, you know, they, I don't know. It's just the, the way they executed it was just always was sort of my favorite, favorite execution. Um, and the same with Vladislav, like a lot of Vladislav delays earlier, longer works um, that mm. just sort of go on and on and little sounds come and go. And I mean, he was much more rhythmic and structured in a way, but, but kind of the same, yeah, these sounds just sort of happening, happening and going away and yeah. uh, teeming around you kind of. Uh, and I think model three step two is maybe my favorite record of theirs, but I like all of them and, you know, they all sound uh, relatively similar. Uh, it's sort of their sound. Um, mm. Just been, you know, always one of those records that I return to and appreciate and, you know, feel, feel a connection to and popped into my head right away when asked, you know, when you asked me this question. So are you able to pinpoint what it is about this one that gives it the edge compared to the other Microstoria albums? Like why was this one put forward as the, the important one? Yeah, no, I don't know if I can, except that when it comes on, I'm always like, yeah, this is my favorite one. You know I mean? It's, <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's much more than that. You know, uh -huh. um, I'd have to, if we had another hour and I could sit and, <laughs> go back to the you know sit here and listening to some of the, go back and forth between the albums i'm sure i could you know answer that question a little more precisely um yeah fair. you know it, off the top of my head i want to say that it sounds a little a little more the sounds are a little smaller and a little more truncated but i could be completely making that up um <laughs> but when I think of their album like SND, I think for some reason uh, it feels a little more elongated to me, and, mm. and Model Three feels just a little more like granular. Um, but yeah, take that with a grain of salt because I'm not exactly sure if it's true or not. Yeah, <laughs> you spoke about that experience of being plopped down in the music. That's something that I've often found really appealing as well, this idea that you're kind of, kind of paying a visit to somewhere that existed before you got there and then remains mm -hmm. when you're gone. There's something very satisfying about that as a listener. I wondered if you had any thoughts as to why that was so inviting to you in terms of the music that you compose but also gravitate towards as a listener. I mean, I think it just goes right back to the beginning to Thursday afternoon. Yeah. I and mean, that's to me the quintessential, that's where I first heard it, you know? So for me, it, it goes back that far um, because that is a really long form piece where mm -hmm. there's, if you listen to that piece in headphones, um, there's a lot going on 
really quietly yeah. that you don't hear when you are just listening to it in a room and in, in speakers. Um, and that's something that I uh, like to play with myself as well. When I'm finishing or mixing a song, I'll drop some of the sounds like way, way down. Um, so you don't hear them unless you put headphones on, which mm. is kind of funny because I don't really listen to music in headphones unless I'm on an airplane. Um, you know, unless I'm in the house or in the studio or in the car or something. But, hmm. um, but yeah, Thursday afternoon is this sort of quintessential environment that you're, and because it's so repetitive and so these repeat, you know, these themes that sort of just go on for the 61 minutes, it really feels, and because I would literally listen to it without almost without start or without end, mm. um, plunk down in the middle of it and waking up in the middle of the night and it's still playing and wake up again, it's still playing. So you're really in this, yeah, in this environment. Um, and yeah, it, it, that always just stuck with me. And I mean, ambient music to me doesn't have, you know, a narrative of any kind. Um, so, and I don't really want it to, um, <laughs> So I think this this sort of formless form, or this music that doesn't go anywhere, uh, really suits it mm. uh, the best. And I kind of, I kind of don't like having to make beginnings and endings. It's my right. least favorite part of music production. Like, all right, I've got to fade this in, and I've got to fade this out, you know, and or I've got to start. You know, there's got to be you've got to start it somehow, and you've got to end it somehow, um, <laughs> and you know, I, I, I try to carefully craft those moments as best I can, um, you know, but yeah, it's just sort of something that I wish didn't have to happen. Yeah. The, um, but, but I also yeah. don't want to subject someone to listen to one of my songs forever, for eternity either, you know, <laughs> so maybe five minutes is plenty, but, but it's just the sort of the formless, the formless nature that you could, you know, maybe drop the needle anywhere and still feel like you're lost in this little world, you know, for however long, whether it's three minutes or 10 minutes or 61 minutes, mm. um, you're in another little, little world and for, you know, free to, free to roam around, which is really the, the sort of formless part of it that I like. Um, yeah. As much as I love all kinds of music and pop music and structures that, you know, take you, on a very guided journey, the, uh, this sort of music lets you discover things, especially like, like Thursday afternoon or like micro stories music where you might listen to it and not necessarily hear all of it, you know? And then the next time you listen to it, you hear things you didn't hear before. And mm. the next time another sound will pop up or, um, you know, multi-length loops, you may find yourself, feeling some sort of loop or rhythm. And the next time you listen to it, your ear is kind of caught on to a different mm, time mm. signature meter and you kind of hear it differently, you know? So it's really sort of open to interpretation and, and different experiences at different, different times you listen to it. You know, you don't always know what you're going to get. Yeah. In the absence of like a composition that, 
kind of temporal aspect isn't dictated to you, right? It's not like yeah. This is the and some bands, some bands combine both, like Talk Talk, you know, yeah, yeah, or Ra- Radiohead, you know, who just have these, you know, pop structures and but with the whole world happening inside, you know. Mm. Um, so, you know, I probably should have mentioned the Talk Talk record, you know, Laughing Stock or Spirit of Eden in my list to you but I felt that would be kind of obvious so other important records Taylor, I've got one more question for you, which is about how you bring music into your life, really, day to day. So, I mean that in the sense of how do you buy music, as in where, what kind of formats. You've talked a bit Mm -hmm. about where you listen to it too, but yeah, tell me a bit about that aspect of being a listener. Yeah, I mean, I, I get a lot of music from friends, which is nice. Um, and I buy music pretty much exclusively in three ways, which is buying vinyl records. Not a lot of them. I have to really want something or really like it to, to grab the vinyl. I'm not like a vinyl junkie or anything. Um, Mm -hmm. but as a family listening experience in the house, I like to play vinyl, um, to let the kids know what these strange black discs are. Um, I think it's important. Um, and then I buy a lot of music on Bandcamp, probably most of it on Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. And then I'm probably the last person on earth who still buys music from Apple's iTunes store and physically adds it to my music library. Wow. Um, I don't use any streaming services. I didn't even know Bandcamp, you could stream music. I mean, when I buy music from Bandcamp, I buy it, download the files, add it to my iTunes library. Um, (laughs) So I don't, I guess you can stream your Bandcamp collection from your Bandcamp app or something, but Uh I don't do that. Um, I like to be very, like my iTunes I don't really like iTunes. It's gotten so bad over the years, but it's just sort of what's still there, but it's very well organized. I know where everything is. I know what I want to listen to. I'm not really a radio kind of listener. Like I I know what I want to listen to when I want to listen to it and not so much like let's turn on like the, you know, the ambient channel on Spotify and just see what comes up, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so random. Um, so that's why I kind of like to have an organized library and everything is, I've got the files. I know where it is. You know, it's the files are all duplicated in my car and, and I have a Sonos system around the house, you know, that feeds off my iTunes library that we can pull from. And 
yeah, so still, yeah, not any streaming service. Not because, you know, I think that streaming is evil or anything like that, which it partially is. But mm-hmm. it's just, you know, I'm I, I'm an of, of a era where, you know, of an age where we, you know, like to own, I don't know, I like to own the music files in whatever format they're in and not just borrow them from some server yeah somewhere you know um so yeah so that's those are the three main ways i i buy music and yeah i I buy it all i don't uh i don't stream it and i also don't like buying singles or parts of an album yeah um If I were a Taylor Dupree fan, I probably wouldn't buy the Eve single. I would wait for the album to come out. Um, That's like, great. You know, favorite bands of mine would like release a single first, and I'd I'd maybe listen to it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I'm really like an album. Like I wouldn't even really. Maybe I'd listen to see if it's. Hopefully they haven't like dropped the ball or anything, and it still sounds good. <laughs> and then wait for the album, and then buy the album, right? And then yeah. Um, because I still think that artists, when there's an album being made, I believe the artists want you to hear the album, you know? Um, I mean, if something's released only as a single, that's fine, but if it's going to be part of a bigger picture, I want to wait until that picture is, is there and then listen to it all at once, you know, you know, another reason, like I'm not just jumping around on streaming services or, or radio stations or whatever you know what about like when cd singles were a big thing did you get pulled into that um if it was something that i mean i was a heavy cd buyer you know in the 90s i guess when everyone was but i was at the time i was listening to a lot of techno and industrial music and if there was a single that had that wasn't on an album or had remixes on it or something special then you know especially if it was a band i was sort of collecting or whatever then i'd get into that Mm -hmm. um but not single for just single sake you know not if it was just like it had to have something that wasn't on the album sort of that would draw me in cool well taylor this has been great i've loved speaking about these three important records and your new music as well so eve and also Northern Redux as well. It's a real pleasure to get some context behind those. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's fun to revisit these records and sort of remind myself of why they were important to me, why they still are important to me. And there's so many more, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) For sure. Uh, But yeah. Nice. And to everyone listening, see you next time. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye.